Thank you, Tamara. Good morning, church family. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for this beautiful snowy morning. We thank you for the privilege and the joy of being able to gather and to sing your praise. Uh, Lord, I, I bow in your presence together with uh, my brothers and sisters this morning, just recognizing uh, so, uh, so profoundly uh, the need for grace, the need for wisdom, uh, the need for your word to speak and to bring truth and to bring light, um, to bring conviction where it's needed and to bring comfort and to bring hope where it's needed. And so, Lord, in a, a room like this, um, uh, with the number of people that are here, the number of different stories, the number of heartbreaks, the number of bad decisions, uh, Lord, I, I know that the, the message that is going to be shared is going to be a difficult message uh, for all of us and particularly for some of us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would be with me. I pray that you would be with my mouth, Lord. I pray that as I aim to teach your word, that you would not allow me to say anything that is not for the building up and for the blessing and the edification of the body of Christ, Lord, so that we would be able to walk in your truth and trust in your promises and live uh, in your love. And so, God, we pray for your help and for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, good morning, church family. If you're visiting with us, my name is Ted. It's my privilege to serve as one of the pastors here today. And if you've only been visiting for the last couple of weeks, you're thinking like, so is this what they do? They just read the same passage every Sunday. Um, this is our fourth week uh, in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 31. And there's, there's a reason for that. And as, as we were setting up uh, this series, uh, we were talking about how this this. This, this concept of being created in the image of God is so vitally important. It's never been more relevant for the church to, to understand what it means for us to be made in the image of God. Uh, here's why it is uh, so, uh, so important. The, the title for today's message is uh, The Image of God and the Sanctity of Life. And uh, uh, parents, if you're here today with, with your children, I do not intend to be graphic uh, in any way, um, but... Um, we are going to talk about some, some very serious uh, topics, and so if you want to uh, slip out the back uh, with your uh, little ones or your young people, then that's, uh, that's completely fine if you would prefer to have that conversation with your child first before some of these, uh, at least these concepts, uh, are introduced. Again, I don't intend to shock uh, anyone. I don't intend to be graphic. I just intend uh, to be clear. But as it relates to the sanctity of life and the image of God, it's very, very important that we get the image of God right. You see, sometimes the image of God is, is, taught, like, is taught like this. It, it's taught in such a way that uh, human beings can speak and they can reason and they have dominion and they can create and they can love. Because humans can do all of these things, that equals the image of God. That we, we have the image of God because we possess the capacity to have dominion and to speak and to love and to create. And many of us think, well, isn't that right? That's not right. What about a human being who doesn't have the capacity to speak? What about a, a human being who, who doesn't have the ability to create or, or who isn't able to reason or to relate in a loving relationship the way that we would? Does that mean that they're no longer human? It's not a functional reality. The image of God is not based on what we can and cannot do that's unique from other animals. That is, that, that, 
It's a partial truth, and if we follow it all the way to the end, we're going to end up devaluing the sanctity of life. It's not that humans can do all of these things, therefore they bear the image of God. It's, and as we read Genesis chapter 1, you see in verse 26 that God said, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. And then look down at, at, at keep reading in verse 26, and, and let them have dominion. He created them in the image first, and it was the image bearing that gave them the authority to have the dominion and to create and to relate. It started with bearing the image. So here's the way we really ought to be thinking about it. It's not that humans can. It doesn't start with what we do. It starts with what God has done. Let's look at the next, the next slide here. God has endowed the special status of image bearers to humans. Therefore, humans can have dominion and speak and reason and create and love. But even if they can't, they still bear the image of God. You see, uh, let me chart it out for you. This is verse 27 and verse uh, 28 coming up on the screen. They were created and then they were commanded to do something. Created in the image of God. The status was given at the point of creation and then he commanded them to have dominion. Just like he created the male and female and then commanded them to be fruitful and multiply. And so here's the truth that we've been reminding ourselves for the last four weeks, that as image bearers, every human being is of equal dignity, value, and worth, regardless of skin color, ethnicity, physical or mental ability, whether male or female, born or unborn, and are, and are all equally deserving of respect, honor, and protection. So Genesis 1, 26 and 27 and 28, God creates male and female in his image. He commands them to be fruitful and to multiply. It's all part of God's good design, even down to the, the, the length of our ring finger and our index finger, as Pastor Chris shared last week. And it's God's perfect design that, that as male and female relate to one another, there comes love, there comes attraction, there comes the covenant of marriage, there comes sexual intercourse and conception and pregnancy and birth and babies and children who grow into adults and love and attraction and you put it on repeat. And there's fruitfulness and there's multiplication. Now we live in a broken world and, and along the line, sometimes the sexual intercourse comes before the marriage and sometimes uh, the, 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 the attraction comes before the love or sometimes there is, there is intercourse but there isn't conception or sometimes there's pregnancy but then there's a miscarriage and all kinds of things can, can happen along the way in a broken world but God's design is clear and his command is clear to be fruitful and multiply. That children, Psalm 127 says that children are a heritage. They are a gift from God. But we live in a world and many in our society and in our culture today do not see pregnancy as a blessing. Do not see children as a gift from God. And therefore do not see life in the womb as having any value or in need of any protection. But the unborn child is an image bearer. At the moment of conception, that little life is a human being. Yes, the little life is smaller. Yes, the little life is completely de dependent on uh, the mother to sustain life. But that little life is an image bearer. 
And that image bearer must be not just protected, but celebrated as a gift from God and cherished all along the way. So uh, this morning we're going to look at this this issue of the sanctity of life from from four different perspectives. We're going to begin with the little life. We're going, if you're taking notes today, just jot this down as the first heading. We're going to look at, at, at this life from the perspective of the little child, of the little child in his or her mother's womb. And as Pastor Chris shared, at the moment of conception, we, we know that, that from, from, from DNA, whether or not that little life is a, is a little boy or a little girl, this little child. Now, Cain isn't born uh, until Genesis chapter 4, but, but the, the image of God is, is so clearly evidenced on every human being. Think about what it says in Psalm 139, David's reflection. He says, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. That that word formed in in verse 13, that's the same word that is used in Genesis 2, 7, where it says that God formed the man out of the dust. That that when when every life is created, God is forming that little life. Wonderful are your works, my, my soul knows it full well. My frame was not hidden for you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was, there was none of them. Not only is God forming that little life in, in the womb of his or her mother, but he, he has the whole life planned out. It's all written in his book. He's intimately equated with this little child. Job says the same thing in chapter 10, verse 8 to 11. Isaiah in 49, verse 1 says that he was called by God from the womb. Jeremiah in ch- chapter 1, verses 4 and 5 says that, says that he was consecrated from his mother's womb. The apostle Paul in the book of Galatians chapter 1, verse 15 says that he was, he was set apart from his mother's womb. God knows and loves his little image bearers in their mother's wombs. Life and personhood are in the womb. Now, many of us, when, when we think about interacting with people that, that, that are, they would call themselves pro-choice because they actually don't like to describe their actual position, so they use a, a euphemism, they would say, well, we, we expect them to think, well, that, that's not really life, that's not really a human being, but that's just, that's just faulty thinking. Catholic philosopher Robert Joyce describes it in this way. He says, at any given moment, a whole living substance, be it a peach tree, a rabbit, or a person, is either alive or not alive. There's no princess bride, mostly dead or mostly alive. There's no in-between status. There is no such thing as a potentially living organism. A one-celled person at conception is not a potential person, but an actual person with great potential for development and self-expression. So that little life cannot act on speaking or loving or reasoning or creating or having dominion, the the things that image bearers are able to do, but that doesn't make it less of an image bearer. 
It has potential development for self-expression. The single-celled individual is just as actually a person as you or I, though the actual personhood and personality of the new individual are as yet much less functionally expressed. But the image of God is not rooted in function. It's, it's rooted in, in being endowed from our creator. The, the truth is that all bioethicists, from Christian universities, from secular universities, atheists, Christians, all bioethicists now recognize that life begins at conception. If you're thinking about reasoning with your family members or your neighbors or your fellow students and you think, I've got to prove that life begins at, exception, at, at, at conception, all bioethicists already recognize that. We used to sort of frame it like people who were in favor of abortion were on the side of science. And the Christians or the people who were against abortion and who were pro-life, they were more on the side of religion or philosophy. And, and, but, so, but actually, it's, it's reversed. Science backs the, the, the pro-life position, DNA. 3D ultrasound. The, the more that we know about this little life, the more that you just cannot argue away the fact that that is a human being. That is human life. And so in the last 20 or 30 years, abortionists, they've actually changed their tactic. They've, they've given that ground. They've lost that battle. They, they've said, okay, you know what? It is a life. But then they... they play a little a semantic switch and say, but it's not a person. It's a life, but it's not a person. Just like if, you know, you, you hear, you hear the, the word baby used if the mother wants the baby, or it's not called a baby if, uh, if a mother is pregnant but doesn't want the baby, then it's not called a baby, it's called a fetus, which ironically just means a little one or an offspring. It means, a fetus means baby. This, this little baby, this little life in the womb, scientists are, are recognizing now that at the moment of conception, they've discovered there's this spark of brilliant light at, at, at fertilization. When, when conception happens, there's a spark of light. Male and female are already determined. 46 chromosomes, 26 from mom, 20, sorry, 23 from mom, 23 from, from dad. In weeks one to four, the little heart muscle starts pulsating and, and heads and arms are, are, are formed and legs. I said heads in the plural, it's just one head. Uh, weeks four to eight, brain waves start, nose, eyes, ears, and toes. Hearts start pumping blood. The skeleton begins to form. The little one has fingerprints. Weeks eight to 12, the little one can start to suck his or her thumb and feel pain. At 8 to 12 weeks, 12 to 16 weeks, the little one is now is a big little one, 8 to 10 inches long. The little one can hear his or her mother's voice and is even starting to process how language and grammar works in their mother's language. Week 16 to 20, the skin, hair, and nails develop. The little one can have dreams and can survive outside the womb. This is a, a little life. Now, the only difference 
between a child in the womb and a child outside the womb really are, are just four things. Location, size, level of dependence, and stage of development. These are really the, the only differences. Location. Are you more human if you're in the auditorium versus Thomas who's standing out there in the foyer? Hi, Thomas. The, your location doesn't really matter. The, the, the unborn child and the born child, all that separates them is like a few centimeters of fluid and skin and flesh. Like that's, all that, that's all that separates them. And yet, that location seems to determine whether or not that life is a person and needs to be protected. What about, what about size? Size shouldn't, just because the, the, the person is small doesn't mean that the person shouldn't have rights. Doesn't mean that the person shouldn't be, be created. Well, what about people who are taller, people who are taller than, than some or shorter than others? Does that mean that they have less value or less worth? Like the bigger that you are, the more human you are? That's not right. Level of dependence. Well, what about, what about when you're... Your, your grandmother or your, or your grandfather starts to have Alzheimer's and becomes more and more dependent on someone to look at. Does that mean that they're less human at that point? What about someone who needs dialysis because their kidneys aren't working? What about someone who's diabetic and needs, is dependent on insulin? Does that mean that they're somehow less human? How, what level of dependence means that someone is no longer considered a human Person And then stage of development. Well, I mean, toddlers are less developed than teenagers, although I'd argue that in some ways. <laughs> and teenagers are de still developing. They're less developed than, than a 20-year-old or a 30-year-old. So stage of development, none of these things can really serve as a criteria. At, at conception, as soon as that child is alive, that child is a human being and a human person. So that's the perspective of the child. How about, how about the mother? Genesis 1.28 gives the command that men and women are created in the image of God. He blessed them and he told them to be fruitful and to multiply. Then a lot happens in the next two chapters, right? You have the first wedding. Then you have Satan slither into the garden and, and lie to Adam and Eve. They eat the fruit. They disobey God. And a curse comes. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. Unfortunately, before children were conceived in the world, sin entered into the world. Genesis 3, verse 16, God speaking to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, and in pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. The truth is, is that while this little child is developing, there is, a, there is a cost because of the curse. There is a cost for the mother. There is a pain in childbearing. There is the, there is the physical pain of childbearing, and then there's also a lot of talk, and these things are, are not insignificant or irrelevant. There is the, uh, the emotional cost. There is the financial cost. There is the social cost that comes with Pregnancy, there is, there is a cost. Also, notice that part of the curse is there's, there's, there's a breakdown 
in the, what's supposed to be a harmonious relationship between male and female. Her desire is going to be for her husband. She wants to rule, but the husband's going to rule over. And, and there's going to be dysfunction in how men and women relate. And sin has entered the world, and so there's all kinds of sexual sin. Sometimes it's sexual sin that men and women consent to participate in together. Other times it's men wrongfully using their God-given strength to dishonor and to demean and to use another image bearer. All of these things are part of the curse. Now, followers of Jesus Christ, we we know the solution to the curse, that Jesus became the curse in order to become a cure. But those who don't have Jesus, those who don't know the forgiveness and the grace that's available, those who don't know and can sing songs like joy to the world, heaven and nature sing, this, this anticipation of the second coming of the one who came at Christmas time, they try to come up with their own ways of reversing the curse. And so abortion is put forward of this, this is a way that a woman can avoid the pain of childbearing. Again, not just the physical act of giving birth, but the social cost and the emotional cost and the physical cost and the, the financial cost. That you, you, can, you, can get out of the, you can get out from under this. And... It's also framed in terms of women's rights. That yes, there is a breakdown between men and women and how they relate. And a woman needs needs to have access to an abortion so that she can be on equal footing with a man. So that that she can can win and rule over or, or prevent herself from being ruled by a man. That's why it so often gets framed in terms of a woman's rights issue. And it gets, it gets framed in terms, of, in terms of choice. That it's the woman's body and that it's her choice. And that I'm not going to let a man rule over me or, or decide for me what I can do with my body. I'm going to rule over my I'm not going to let God or religion tell me what to do with my body. I'm going to decide. I appreciate the way Rebecca McLaughlin addresses the idea of my body, my choice. She says, what if you'd slipped over the edge of a cliff and the only thing keeping you from falling to your death was me holding your hand? What if my arm was in serious pain and my shoulder was dislocated by your weight? What if I'd been forced by someone else to hold your hand before you've slipped. Would I have the right to choose to let you go? No. I'd need to hold on as long as possible until other help could come. My body matters, but your body matters too. There's, there's another body that needs to be 
considered. There's another person with rights that are God-given that needs to be considered as well. There are very, very difficult situations in which a, a, a woman was raped, and, and it's very rare that a woman who's raped would become pregnant, and it's, it's very rare that a woman who was raped would become pregnant and would want an abortion. But in those unique circumstances, we need to think. By all means, punish the rapist. But don't punish the woman. And don't punish the child. You, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't execute a born child if his or her father were a rapist. So why would you do it to an unborn child? Then again, we live in a broken world because of the curse. There are some very, very tragic, again, very rare situations where the, the mother's life is in danger because of, because of the pregnancy. And some people call that the uh, procedures to try to save the life of, of the mother. As, well, that's just like, an, it's not just like an abortion. What is the intent of the surgery? Again, I can't get into the details, but the intent is to save the mother. The, 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 the intent of an abortion is to destroy the life of the child. So we live in a very, very broken world. And, and some of us have experienced this firsthand. This isn't just a political thing for you or, or an academic. This, this, this happened in your family or this happened... This happened in your own life, in your own body. And whether it was pressure from others or a lack of information or, or being lied to by someone or, or just your own willful decision, we often make our worst decisions when we're, when we're afraid. But there's hope for those who have made those kinds of decisions. But our world is trending in a very concerning direction when it comes to what, what is called the, the, the pro-choice movement or the women's rights movement. Some people make decisions based in fear, but what is really concerning is how some of the voices of the pro-choice movement, the logic that they are using. Let me give you an example. Uh, this is uh, Antonia Signor. Uh, she wrote an article in the London Times, and she says, oh yeah, you can go to the next slide. That's, that's the article there. It says, what seems increasingly clear to me is that in the absence of an objective definition, a fetus is a life by any subjective measure. So she's, again, she's conceded the ground. She's no longer trying to prove that an unborn child is not a life. She said, no, it's a life. She goes on. The single biggest factor in women's liberation was our newly found ability to impose our will on our biology. Abortion would have been legal for millennia had it been men whose prospects and careers were put on a sudden hold by an unexpected pregnancy. See Genesis 3 there? 
Your desire will be for your husband. Men will rule over you. As ever, when an issue was thought, sorry, when an issue we thought was black and white becomes more nuanced, that's because they used to think that a, a fetus is not a life, but now, now it is. But it, it, the issue's still black and white. <laughs> but she doesn't want to admit that it's black and white, so she says it's still gray. No, it's not. It's just black and white in the other way. It's black and white. You thought you were right, but you're wrong. She says this nuance. The answer lies in choosing the lesser evil. And this is the, this is the chilling statement. The nearly 200,000 aborted babies in the UK each year are the lesser evil. No matter how you define life or death for that matter. The lesser evil. Lesser evil than what? All of these children dying is a lesser evil than, and this is what she says, the prospects and careers being put on a sudden hold. The prospects and careers finishing that university degree so that you can make spreadsheets and give PowerPoint presentations? Missing out on, on that? That that is so evil? It's so important. What, what is wrong with our world that that is so important? That that's considered, that, that, that it, it, it's worth killing for. I'll give you one more uh, example again. I, I, I just want to highlight how our world is logical. Like some of us have, have made these decisions and there's grace for those and there's hope for those, but I, I, want, I want us to, to come to grips with the, the logic in our world today. This is Mary Elizabeth uh, Williams who wrote an article in the Salon. She says, when we try to act like a pregnancy doesn't involve human life, we wind up drawing stupid semantic lines in the sand. First trimester abortion versus second trimester versus late term, dancing around the issue, trying to decide if there's a single magic moment when a fetus becomes a person. Here's the complicated reality in which we live. All life is not equal. A fetus can be a human life without having the same right as the woman in whose body it resides. She's the boss. Her life and what is right for her circumstances and her health should automatically trump the rights of the non-autonomous entity inside of her. Always. Then listen to what she says next. Abortion saves lives. As we often see that on placards, but l listen to how she clarifies it. Not just in the most medically literal way, because it rarely does. When she says abortion saves lives, she's not talking about life. In the, in the medical way, like you were alive and now you're dead. But in the roads, in the roads that women who have choice then get to go down in the possibilities for them 
and for their families. And I would put the life of a mother over the life of a fetus every single time. What does she mean when she says life of the mother? She doesn't mean the biological, living, breathing life of the mother. She means the roads that she can go and the possibilities. She puts that life against the life of the fetus every single time. Even if I still need to acknowledge my conviction that a fetus is indeed a life. You just read that next line yourself. I can barely even... A life worth sacrificing for some vague description of roads and possibilities. What about the road and the possibility of motherhood? What about men and women celebrating the fact that mothers have wombs and this capacity to carry around this child for nine months and then give birth to it and then nurse it and nourish it and care for it and to have the joy of having children in your home and in your community? What about that? What about celebrating life? Men and women are different. Glory to God. Hallelujah. Women have this special and unique capacity and gift and privilege. Your Excel spreadsheets and your PowerPoint presentations and your degrees and your awards, they won't do anything for you. but to recognize the privilege of being able to bring life into this world. Genesis chapter 3, verse 20, right after the curse, we have this this brilliant moment of hope. It says, then the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. She's given this privileged title Because she is a mother. Again, it's so twisted to frame this as a women's rights issue that a woman needs to have the right to be equally unpregnant as a man. But women and men are equal, not because they both could potentially have the right to not be pregnant. Well, a man never can't be pregnant at all. Equality is not rooted in whether or not someone has the right to be unpregnant. Equality is rooted in the image of God. That's where value and significance comes from, not from what you're able to do in your career or your accomplishments. The tragic irony of framing this as a women's rights issue is sex-selective abortions. And we have laws in Canada trying to prevent this. And it's, it's not just a Canadian problem. It's a worldwide problem. There, people are calling it gendercide. In, in China, there is a 35 million person gap between men and women. 
because of abortion. In India, it's 25 million. It's, it is a woman's rights issue. It's, it's, the, it's the little baby girls. It's their rights that are being taken away. Rather than thinking that a woman cannot progress in society, she needs to put her prospects on hold and her career on hold in order for her to have worth. She, she needs to have an abortion. Well, why don't we, why don't we just change society rather than choosing to kill in order to meet the expectations of society? Why don't we start to celebrate what life is? I love how Nancy Piercy in her brilliant book, Love Thy Body, says, a culture that practices abortion and infanticide is a culture that demeans women and disrespects their unique contribution to the task of reproduction. It does not treat women's ability to gestate and bear children as a wondrous and awesome capacity, but as a liability a disadvantage, a disability. It, it does not have value and protect women in their childbearing capacity, but seeks to suppress women's bodily functions using toxic chemicals and deadly devices to violently destroy life inside her. A society that values abortion is, is a society that doesn't value women. Let's look at this issue from the lens of the society. We've seen it from the, issue, from the perspective of the child, the perspective of the woman, and then uh, thirdly, from the perspective of society. We live in a society that worships sex. We live in a sexually broken world that is uh, obsessed with sexual freedom and sexual expression that also uh, worships individualism and individual rights. And the culture of death as it's related to abortion goes right along with this. Many of us in the last uh, several months have heard or read a lot or thought a lot about uh, Roe versus Wade, uh, south of the border. Our Canadian version of Roe versus Wade was the Crown versus Morgenthaler in 1988. And it centered around this section in the uh, Canadian Charter uh, of, of Rights, Section 7, says, everyone has the right to life, liberty, and security of the person, and the right not to be deprived thereof except in accordance with the principles of fundamental justice. Everyone has the right to life and to liberty and to security. This is in our Charter of Rights. And in the Canadian Supreme Court and Crown versus Morgenthaler in 1988, a justice named Bertha Wilson, who was the first female to sit on our Supreme Court, this was her legal opinion on the matter. She says, the right to liberty contained in Section 7 guarantees that every individual, guarantees to every individual a degree of personal autonomy over important decisions intimately affecting his or her private life. Liberty in a free and democratic society does not require the state to approve such decisions, but it does require the state to respect them. She goes on. 
a woman's decision to terminate her pregnancy falls within this class of protected decisions. It is one that will have profound psychological, economic, and social consequences. We acknowledge that under the curse. There is a cost to childbearing. She says that because of that, it is a decision that deeply reflects the way the woman thinks about herself and her relationship to others and to society at large. It is not just a medical decision. It is a profound social and ethical one. So she ratchets up, she ratchets up the intensity. It's, it's not just a medical decision. It's, it's, also so, it's also ethical. We need to make sure we get this right. And so she says that on this ethical, not fully or uniquely medical decision that the woman should have the right to terminate her pregnancy. And she bases it off Section 7 of the Canadian Charter of Rights. Everyone has the right to life, liberty, and security of the person. She adds in her decision this statement. The question whether a fetus is covered by the word everyone in Section 7 of the Charter so as to have an independent right to life under that section was not dealt with. This is an important decision, not just a medical decision, but an ethical decision. The woman needs to decide. Her rights, oh, by the way, the rights of the unborn child was not dealt with. What was... What was the point of it coming to the Supreme Court? I mean, that was the whole, that was the whole point, was to deal with that. And it wasn't dealt with. That was 1988. Fast forward to where we are now. What happens to a society when it loses its sight of the image of God on every human being? It starts a culture of life at the beginning of life at the moment of conception, and then right up to the Canadian Criminal Code says that a, 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 it says a child is not a human. What kind of a child is it then? The language says a child is not a human until the child is outside of his or her mother. Why is it his or her mother? Why is it a child? Children are little humans. That's what a child, a child is not a human. What does that even mean? So at the beginning of life, we're taking away life, and, then, and now we're doing it at the end of life, aren't we? In medical assistance and dying. 10,000 people in, in, in 2021 were added to the somewhat 80, 80 to 100,000 babies that were killed. 10,000 people were killed by medical assistance and dying, and even more and in March of 2023, it's, it's, it's not just a physical illness, but mental illness, which is just going to open a floodgate for the culture of death. Well, what, what's next in our culture? Just, just being too old? Having, having a disability? I mean, doctors encourage 
mothers to take tests to determine whether or not your child has a, has a disability so that you could kill that? Would you, would you kill your child out of the womb because he or she had a disability? If they had an accident at 10 or 11 years old that left them mentally or physically disabled, would, would you kill them? So then why, why, why would you in the womb? Our birth rate is dramatically sinking. 2.1 is what's needed for a culture to sustain itself. 2.1 births per woman. We haven't been there since the 1970s. We're now at 1.4. Satan is always trying to kill the vulnerable. He's always trying to kill the children. Cain killed Abel. Pharaoh tried to kill all the Hebrew children. Moloch in the, in the, the valley of, of, of Hinnom, where people sacrificed their children. Herod in the Christmas story killed all of the, all of the young boys in Bethlehem. The elderly aren't safe. The mentally ill aren't safe. The physically disabled aren't safe. Even infants aren't safe. I mentioned our, our criminal code that is very sketchy in terms of defining what a, what a child is. Peter Singer, the Ivy League bioethicist, listen, listen, to what, listen to what he says. A weak old baby is not a rational and self-conscious being. And there are many non-human animals whose rationality, self-conscious, awareness, capacity, and so on, exceed that of a human baby, a week or a month old. The life of a newborn baby is of less value than the life of a pig, a dog, or a chimpanzee. Because Peter Singer determines value. No, no, God <laughs> has endowed human beings as image bearers and therefore have value. In our culture, we eat pigs. Some cultures eat dogs. I don't know if any cultures eat chimpanzees. He goes on to say, there is a lack of any clear boundary between the newborn infant who is clearly not a person in the ethically relevant sense. I suggested that a period of 28 days after birth might be allowed before an infant is accepted as having the same right to life as others. How's that for being inclusive? Oh no, we the smart ones, we the strong ones will look at the weak and vulnerable and determine whether or not they live or die. This is what happens to a society that has their eyes off the image of God. Roman society where Christianity grew and flourished was no different. Roman society was pro-choice. Roman society was in favor of abortion and infanticide, especially for little girls. And the women didn't have the choice. It was the men who lorded it over them. Plato, Aristotle, Cicero, everyone who we read about in philosophy class, they were all in favor of infanticide, killing infants. And Christians began to stand out because first and foremost, they told husbands to stay with one wife. 
and told husbands and wives to, to, to practice their conjugal rights and their conjugal responsibilities toward one another. And, and taught marital faithfulness and sexual purity. Not only that, they went and found these little babies who had been abandoned and left out and thrown in the gutter. They started orphanages. They started adopting them and raising them. The Christians then were countercultural. Christians today need to be countercultural. Amen. When a, when a young woman or an older woman has an unplanned pregnancy and un, outside of a wedlock or as, as the result of sexual sin, the church, we do not shame that woman. We, we, we acknowledge that how she got herself into the situation might have been a result of sin, but what is happening inside of her is still something glorious to be celebrated. So we don't shame her. We don't bring her up to the front of the, front of the church, sure. We, we bring people that might know her, who, who can love her and support her as she walks in repentance. We can come alongside her and talk with her. We don't shame people who find themselves in, their, in that situation. She's already bearing enough shame. We love women with all pregnancies, especially unplanned pregnancies. We connect and support things like the Pregnancy Care Center, we consider adoption or we support families that are currently adopting, whether logistically or practically or financially. Loved ones were called to be countercultural. <laughs> this is why. Because, because God is our Father, and none of us are unwanted children. There are no unwanted children. We're all wanted. So loved ones, we, we've looked at the child, the mother, the society. It's been discouraging. It's been hard. It's been a hard message to hear. I know it's been a really hard message to give. But just, just hear this. The, now let's talk about the Savior. Let's talk about the Savior, especially at this season. Rem remember, remember that beautiful prophecy from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For unto us a child is born. A son is given. God's rescue plan involved the arrival of a baby. It involved conception. It involved life in the womb. This is God's perfect plan. And then as, as Mary is pregnant, she goes over to her aunt Elizabeth's house, and it says, when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby, the John, leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. Notice the personhood of John the Baptist in that he, he leapt in the womb and, the, and Elizabeth recognizes that. And also notice that while Jesus is in the womb, he is Lord. He is a person. The mother of my Lord. While in the womb, Jesus had an identity. He had personhood. And I mean, Mary, that was the definition of an unplanned pregnancy. She was, she was born out of wedlock. She was, or, or, sorry, she, she conceived out of wedlock. She conceived into poverty. And her 
fiance, uh, Joseph, in Matthew chapter 1. It says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, and when his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He was born to save his people from our sins, to save us from the sin of abortion. Whether you have assisted in abortion or pressured a mother into an abortion or were a mother yourself and had an abortion, you are not outside of the saving reach of Jesus whose very name means God saves. And he can save you from your sin and he can save you from that shame. Maybe at a weak time, a fearful time in your life, you, you follow the path of Proverbs 14, a 12 that says that there is a way that seems right to man, but in the end, it is the way to death. You thought you were doing what was right. You thought what needed to, you, you, you thought you were helping and you realize now, no, that has led to death. And the Bible tells us in the book of Romans that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that your sin is not unique. And that the wages of sin is death, Romans 6, 23, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus because this baby came to die. God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were pro-choice or while we made that choice ourselves or supported someone who did, Christ died for us. And when Jesus Christ went to the cross, as he suffered and died for our sin, he said these three beautiful words, it is finished. All of the guilt, all of the shame, all of the consequences, all of the sleepless nights, all of the tears, it is finished. You are forgiven. Christ has paid the penalty for your sin. And John, who witnessed the suffering Messiah on the cross, standing beside Jesus' mother, said this in 1 John 1, 9, that, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Psalm 103, verse 10 and 12 and 13 says that he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. And then in Ephesians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul wanting to remind us that we are not unwanted children, but that we are wanted children, says that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Remember Psalm 139, that little life in the womb, all of that, all of that little boy or that little girl's life 
is written in God's book. All of your life, before the foundation of the world, God knew what was going to happen in your life, the decisions that you were going to make, the sinful choices and its consequences. He knew that, and He still loves you, and He still chose you. He chose us before the foundation of the world so that we would be holy and blameless. We're not holy and blameless. But God has made us that way in Christ. In love, he predestined us for adoption. We are, we are wanted children. We are adopted into the family of God. Adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Loved ones, the, the image of God and the sanctity of life, from the child to the mother to the society, loved ones, to the Savior, that He is the one who came for us as a child who suffered and died for our sins so that we could be adopted into His family. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we pray right now in the name of Jesus that you would help us to draw near in awe and in wonder of your plan and your purpose and your design, your intentionality as it relates to unborn children. God, I also pray that this church family would be a community of grace, a community of forgiveness, a, a, a community where the brokenness of this world does not change the, the truth of what it means to be image bearers, that we would love and that we would serve and that we would support. And so, Father, we pray uh, in Jesus' name, Lord, as we think about the coming of the Lord Jesus, born as a child, conceived in his mother's womb. I pray that as we get ready, Lord, as we're celebrating Advent, as we prepare for the Christmas season, Lord, that we would worship the Lord Jesus for coming to save us from our sins. In his name we pray. Amen.